Hi everyone, quick note before we get into the podcast. This episode was recorded in late December 2019, and in the conversation we mentioned a deadline to apply to the first cohort of the Helix Rare Treatment Accelerator. This deadline has now passed, but anyone who's interested in this program can still register their interest on the Helix website. That's helix.io, H-E-A-L-X.io, anytime to receive the latest updates on the program. Thanks and enjoy the show. Welcome to the Genetics Podcast. I'm Patrick, the co-founder and CEO of Sano Genetics, and I'm really excited to have not one, but two great guests today. We have Dr. Bruce Bloom, the Chief Collaboration Officer from Helix, and Dr. Mike Trafalia from the Fraxa Research Foundation, which is a nonprofit focused on accelerating research in Fragile X Syndrome, which is a rare condition that affects millions of people worldwide, and, and we're certainly going to learn more about it today. Uh, I believe it's one of the most common, if, if not the most common, cause of intellectual disability in children. So it's a, while it's a rare disease, it's, it's on the common side of rare. Uh, Helix is a company based in Cambridge, UK, that was at one point a startup, but now it's growing very quickly due to their very successful model for drug repurposing and rare disease. So we'll go into this in more detail, but Helix uses a machine learning approach to do something called drug repurposing, which takes medicines that have already proven to be safe and effective treating one disorder and applies them to a new one. So there are a number of advantages to this approach, especially in rare disease. Um, and Mike is uh, the medical director and chief scientific officer of Fraxa. So he and his wife, Katie, actually founded the organization after their son, Andy, was diagnosed with Fragile X. So Mike is a medical doctor by training and specialized in psychiatry. So he not only has the personal connection, but also brings some deep medical expertise to the role. Um, and Mike, as a side note, I also noticed when I was doing my background research that you went to the University of North Carolina for medical school, which is also where I went for my undergraduate degree uh, doing biology and math. So we have a connection. Go Tar Heels. (laughs) Go Tar Heels. Okay. So just to get started, Mike, I was wondering if maybe you could uh, bring us back to the founding of Fraxa and the original mission that uh, brought you and your wife, Katie, to actually uh, start the foundation in the first place. Our son, Andy, was born in 1989 which makes him 30 years old now, and that's scary all by itself. But uh, after he was born, we pretty quickly realized that he had some significant developmental delays. And we had a difficult time getting diagnosed at first, but eventually, when he was three, he got the diagnosis of Fragile X, basically because he finally, finally saw a developmental pediatrician who had seen other cases of Fragile X. So he recognized it, literally recognized the look, the uh, actual face, facial dysmorphisms that occur in Fragile X. So after we got the diagnosis, obviously, we, uh, we started reading up on this thing. And I am a, a doctor, and I'd heard of Fragile X, but going back to the textbooks, I realized that very few of them had more than a paragraph about Fragile X. It was this sort of mysterious condition that nobody really understood very well. We started to reach out to some of the established groups that were already forming parent support groups and advocacy groups in the Fragile X field. And we realized that there really wasn't a whole lot of research going on about Fragile X. Fortunately, at that stage of the game, the gene had been discovered because the reason they call it Fragile X is, is that the, fragile, the X chromosome appears to have a fragile site on it. it. It actually appears to be bent or broken, only when it's incubated in a, under special conditions. But it, it gives the name Fragile X to the condition, and it turns out that the gene is actually located at that site. So that really assisted in the Human Genome Project finding the Fragile X gene. So shortly after the gene was discovered, the scientists who were working on it were able to make a knockout mouse. So there was an animal model becoming available just as we were getting into the field. And of course, I'm a medical person. My wife is a computer scientist. And at that time, the internet was just becoming a major force in everyone's lives. And so when you're dealing with a rare disease, it's hard to get a lot of people together but the internet allowed us to do that and to communicate with other families all around the world. So we decided we would start this organization, this nonprofit 
to raise money for Fragile X research, especially with a, an eye toward developing new treatments for Fragile X, and fund biomedical research that would actually tackle this problem. Now, a lot of people thought that was kind of a crazy idea at the time because this is a form of intellectual disability and autism spectrum disorder. And people thought, well, that, that doesn't seem like a treatable disease. That's just the way these kids right. are. Uh, but obviously, looking at the, the, the problem from the scientific level, this is clearly a single gene disease. It results in cellular abnormalities that are potentially treatable. And so we saw Fragile X right from the start as a treatable condition. And I think a lot of other people have come around to that point of view. Uh, yeah. So what kind of research have you funded over the years? Has it been a lot of drug repurposing, putting things into clinical trials? Or you mentioned that there's very little known. Did, did you all invest in some earlier stage research to try to understand the, the more fundamental biological nature of the disease? Yeah, right from the beginning, we adopted this approach of doing biomedical research to look for the basic mechanisms of disease. And so like a lot of rare disease foundations, we looked to academic labs to try to figure out what was going on. So we funded a lot of research initially on basic mechanisms of disease, but we also were thinking right from the beginning about more definitive therapies, things like gene therapy, gene replacement, gene editing, protein replacement. And in the case of Fragile X, we have the, the particular option of, of a, a gene which is fully functional, but it's been silenced. And so we actually have the possibility of doing gene reactivation. A lot of those technologies looked really promising circa 1994, but I think it's safe to say that at that time, the, the technology just wasn't really ready for prime time. So in the end, we started doing more and more research that was a kind of rational drug discovery process for Fragile X. And I, I think we were really successful with that, but we also began to appreciate the challenges of identifying treatment targets and then coming up with drugs that could actually make a difference in uh, a human being, especially an adult human being with a developmental disability. So we, we had a lot of challenges, but a lot of successes, and we, we ended up having quite a few clinical trials that came out of that. Uh, unfortunately, nothing has really popped yet. We haven't had the, the big success that we had hoped for by, by looking for investigational drugs that could treat the, the pathways involved in Fragile X. So maybe this is a good segue to ask you to introduce yourself, uh, Bruce. So uh, Bruce was the founder of Cures Within Reach, which was a uh, not-for-profit also focused around rare disorders and drug repurposing. Um, so maybe we can try to weave these stories together shortly. But Bruce, I was wondering if you could um, just give us a quick background of how you got into rare disease research and, and advocacy and, and what brought you to Helix today where you're working on collaborating with not just um, groups like Fraxa, but many others. I started in this space um, in 2002 and I, I got there in a very circuitous route. So when I was growing up, I wanted to be a dentist, and uh, it was my life dream. So I, I went to dental school, and um, partway through dental school, I realized I had some vision issues that were going to make it really difficult to, to be a full-time dentist. This was a very long time ago before they invented the microscope lenses that are now embedded in a lot of dentist glasses. And had that been around, I'd probably still be a dentist. Right. <laughs> so I uh, I went to law school thinking I needed a new career. And in the late 80s, I came out of law school and I got, because of now having a background that could be um, regulatory interested and also having a healthcare background, I started to slide into clinical research and regulatory affairs and professional relations in, in the healthcare research space. Um, I also did a little bit of work in the professional liability medical malpractice space, but I've been involved in medical research from back in the 1980s. And 
After spending 20 years in Fortune 500 companies, I decided I wanted to give back, and I became the executive director and later president and chief science officer of a family foundation. And while we were working as part of that family foundation, we, um, without much thought to it being drug repurposing, funded a number of drug repurposing clinical trials, which turned out to have spectacular results. So taking uh, fairly innocuous drugs that were designed for disease A and repurposing them for disease B, and that turned out to be um, very powerful therapeutics. In several of these situations, they treated rare diseases of children that were at the time deadly and were able to um, basically return these kids almost to normal health. And um, as we started doing that, we thought, this is really interesting. We're funding all this new chemical, new drug research and not getting anywhere with it. And we're funding these little pivotal clinical trials in the drug repurposing space and actually saving lives. So in 2005, we pivoted to be a drug repurposing nonprofit and started a public charity that's now called Cures Within Reach. So I was at the helm there for 17 years until I stepped down early this summer in, in 2019. And along the way, I had um, spent some time with Tim Gwillems and Dave Brown, the co-founders of Helix. I was on their science board. And um, when I was looking for my next adventure, I talked to them and um, I connected with them fairly quickly after I stepped down at Cures Within Reach. Now, I've, I know Mike and Fraxa for two reasons. So first of all, we um, followed Fraxa and were involved with them in our work at Cures Within Reach because they were doing repurposing with Helix and others. And also, I happen to have a family connection to this too. My nephew, Alex, who's 35 right now, also has Fragile X syndrome. And so I've been very um, involved in uh, helping my sister-in-law and my nephew try and figure out what to do about it. We're we're lucky Alex is very high-functioning with his fragile X and doesn't have a lot of, um, you know, some of the more severe symptoms, but we're still looking for therapies that can help him lead a more normal life. So with the Helix collaboration, Mike, what were the kind of therapies that you originally started pursuing and how did that process go? Did you get in touch with them? Did they get in touch with you? Did you meet at a, a conference of some sort? And, and how did that actually, where did you start and, and where is it at today? Well, as usual, it's all about personal connections. And in this case, we had been working with the number of pharma companies of all different sizes, including some small startup companies. And actually, one of the small startup companies that we were working with was also based in Cambridge, England. And uh, the the CEO of the company, who I'd been in regular contact with because we were testing some of their drugs, some of their investigational drugs in the Fragile X animal models, he said, you know, have you guys been interested much in repurposing available drugs because I know this guy and the company's just down the street. They call it Helix. It's kind of a new company, but they they do consulting on repurposing available drugs. And um, I really like these guys at this this company called Sentinel Oncology in the UK. And we've been working with them for a while and kind of felt that they they liked us too. And they had our best interest at heart. And I thought, huh, well, maybe I should talk to this guy. So I talked to Tim Gilliams and... uh, Right off the bat, we uh, we could tell that we were seeing eye to eye, and we we really had the same goals. And so we decided to do a repurposing project with Helix. And just from a, a research standpoint, it's very economical. It doesn't cost a lot of money to do this. So compared to what we would have spent on any given postdoctoral fellowship for a year. Uh, For less money than that, we were able to do this repurposing project. And after a few months of study, they came up with a list of repurposing predictions for us. And the really cool thing about that list, which had a kind of top eight, so the big eight predictions, included two drugs 
that we were already working on, and they had no way of knowing that. Right. And then it had some other drugs that we hadn't been working on, but we had the ability to test these things in the animal models because we maintain that capacity in our organization, and I think that's really important. And so we immediately plugged those predictions into the wet lab, because remember, these are all artificial intelligence-generated predictions coming from a computer and curated by the, the staff at Helix, who are where they have a lot of experts in pharmaceutical development, but nobody's actually testing these things. And so we decided to test some of them. And what we found was that some of them worked really well, some of them not so well. So we got a spectrum of response to these compounds, which I found reassuring because frankly, there's this opinion going around that, that everything works in animal <laughs> models and then nothing works in the human, but that's not the case. We have a lot of experience working with the animal models and we definitely know when something's working and something's right. not working. So we found a couple of real winners that were not on our radar at all, unlike some of the other predictions which were on our radar. And so that was really exciting that for less than the cost of a, a single postdoc in a single lab for one year, we all of a sudden had some new, not just treatment targets, but actual available right. drugs that we could put into clinical trials. And so, uh, so that's what we're doing now. Amazing. So Bruce, how does the, how does the process actually work? Um, the machine learning or artificial intelligence approach, how, how do you spit out potential repurposable treatments? The first part before the spitting out is how do you create the, the Helix platform? We call it Helnet. And it has um, four main components to it. The first one is what we call natural language processing. What that means is we gather all of the available um, scientific and medical literature and we put it in a format that a computer can read it and then we train the computer to read through as if it's reading natural language and make connections between words and phrases in a way that a human would and the benefit of having the computer do this is that the computer can read millions of pages much faster than a human at light speed and it can remember and document everything that it's read. And then it can make connections between what it's reading now and what it's reading five seconds later and five seconds later. And it builds up a database of how things are connected. And what's especially remarkable about this kind of machine learning artificial intelligence is not only can it amass a huge amount of evidence, but it, 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 finds what would really be non-obvious to a human reader because we just can't keep so much information in our brains at the same time. And that the trail of getting from point A to point Z or point Z would be so complicated that no human would be able to follow it or not many right. of us. But the computer can keep track of it. And then at the end, you can program the computer to display all of its information in rank order of why it thinks the top is more important than the bottom. And with a click, you can see the evidence chain that the computer used to generate why it thinks this is important. And then the humans, uh, as, as Mike said, we have a, a crack staff of pharmacologists and other scientists who can then go and look at what the computer has decided and help to then figure out what the computer did really well and what it didn't do so well, take what it did well and move it forward into, as Mike said, now we have some predictions at work, and then go back and retrain the computer that next time it doesn't make the same few mistakes that it made. That's the machine learning part. So the next time you run another um, query on the computer, you hopefully get a better set of results. And each time we do that, the results get a little bit better. And sometimes we'll go back six to 12 months later and rerun the same disease through the system and we'll get even better results than we did the first time because we've retrained 
the computer each time we've run and we're running these, you know, several times a day and going back on a weekly basis and updating and doing the machine learning. So it's a really powerful way of helping humans to do a better job with the training that they've had. Right. So, so it's a, it's constantly iterating and updating. So you have this, this web of knowledge that's the computer reading essentially all of medical literature, plus you bring in laboratory data and other kind of things and, and build this knowledge graph, right? I think I've heard you all call it a knowledge graph before that allows you to make connections between existing drugs. And I think it's really important to underscore that, that we pretty much know they're already safe, which allows you to skip tons of steps in the process in terms of developing a new drug, right? So, so Mike, you received this list of eight. I think it's amazing that two of them you already knew about. It's a kind of internal validation that probably gave you much more confidence in this startup company at the time that no one had really heard of. And, and so where are you at today? You've been working on not just the mouse models, but I suppose next steps, thinking about whether any of them are viable for a, a, a clinical trial or, or pivotal study. Yeah, definitely. In fact, we were so happy with the results from the first study that we did. We did a second study that was focusing on combinations of available drugs. Right. And the reason for that is realistically, you have to assume when you're dealing with a major neurodevelopmental disorder, especially in somebody who's a little bit older, it's probably going to take more than one available drug to make a big difference in their condition. And you need to move the needle enough in clinical trials that you can really see a statistically significant effect. And one of the problems that's that's been really hard to overcome in, in any kind of CNS drug development has been that clinical trial stage where you can often see some improvement or you'll see improvements in subgroups of patients, but you don't get that overwhelming positive effect that you're looking for that says, yes, this is the treatment for this condition. And so we, we figured by going to combinations of available drugs, we could get a more powerful effect. And, and that's where this this AI approach really pays off because it can it can go through all the kind of multiplex variations involved in combinations of drugs and how to assemble these combinations intelligently. Um, and then we started testing those combinations in the animal models. And now we're actually in the uh, in the late planning stages of a clinical trial for combination therapies in Fragile X, which is really kind of a first. It's it's difficult to it's a difficult problem to tackle in clinical trials because you can imagine that if you have two or three drugs and you need to test each one of those individually and each one of those in, in all the available combinations in humans, that that becomes very time-consuming and very expensive. And yep. especially in rare diseases, it's uh, you know you often don't have that many patients available to you. Right. So you have to be smart about how you do it. Yeah, absolutely. And and it's a in rare disease actually like you said just finding enough patients that fit the criteria. Sometimes the criteria for these trials are so specific and they require they ask a lot of the families as well to uh, multiple visits, sometimes traveling. We had a previous podcast episode where we talked a lot about this that you have to really make sure the trial is set up right because you often only have one shot at it and if it if it doesn't go right then it's many millions of dollars and, and a lot of time and, uh, and hope in many cases as well um, dashed. Yeah, and I, I want to add a couple of things to what Mike said. One of the nice things about combinations is you can often then give the, the drugs in the combination at a lower dose than you might give if right. it was just a single drug. And so you can get, an, you can get synergy where if you gave drug A, you'd see this effect, and if you gave drug B alone, you'd see this effect. And when you give them together, you actually see an effect that's more than what you would see just adding the two effects together. So often their mechanism of actions or targets or pathways that these drugs work on where they actually help each other work better. So, you know, that's the first thing. And the, the second piece is... Um, and we're working with uh, with Fraxa on this, is to think of 
in these kinds of CNS diseases, are there ways to get more objective outcome measurements that would show that the drugs have done something powerful on the patient? Because often in these diseases, you're measuring things like how long does somebody make eye contact and are they happier or less anxious? And it's a little more subjective and difficult. And I know, um, you know, both for, for Andy with, you know, Mike and his family, and also for my nephew, Alex, they've both been involved in clinical trials where their families saw what they thought was pretty remarkable impact of some therapies that were being tested. But overall, it was hard to validate that they made enough clinical impact to get those drugs approved. And I know how devastating it was both for our family and for Mike's family when those drugs didn't move towards market, even though we thought they had made huge impact on on our boys. And so as we're planning these clinical trials with Fraxta, we're also looking at, are there ways for us to take the knowledge that we have and find some more objective outcomes that you know could help us measure things so that these therapies will actually get approval and can move to the patients. Right. I, I actually read the, there's an article, on, I think it was in NPR, uh, Mike, about your experience and your wife and Andy's experience in clinical trial where you felt that it was working, but the, the in the aggregate, the trial didn't succeed for one reason or another. So it must be it must be a very frustrating and, and in some ways motivating uh, process to to do better this time. Definitely, we learned a lot of lessons during the course of these large scale trials that have been done on on some of the treatment approaches that we developed, and and so we were pushing these things very hard because we thought for sure. In, in the particular case of the MGLUR5 antagonist, we thought for sure these drugs will work in fragile life, and they worked incredibly well in the animal models. And then when we got into the clinical trials, they worked incredibly well in our son. But then what we saw over the course of many months was a kind of habituation, a kind of tolerance right. developed to the drug. And I think that points out an important problem with investigational drugs in general and an important advantage of repurposing available drugs in that some of these investigational drugs have have problems with them that you can't anticipate in advance. You, you don't really know how humans will respond to these drugs until you try them. And in this case, the drug worked great, but then we kind of lost the effect over time. Right. So that's a, that's a big problem with investigational drugs and repositioning, you might call it, these investigational drugs for a rare disease, which is what a lot of rare disease foundations do. A lot of rare disease foundations are doing academic research where they start out by identifying a treatment target and they say, look, are there any drugs that can actually address this treatment target? And they say, yes, there's a drug in development with this pharmaceutical company over here. And the problem is that you... You can't get access to that drug if they're developing a blockbuster indication like Alzheimer's, for example, because they don't want to jeopardize that that major drug development project for your teeny tiny little rare disease. And so you have to wait till those drugs fail for their primary indication. So one of the things I've mentioned before, I think, is that is that failure is almost a prerequisite when you have that approach. You're working right. with this pool of failed drugs that you know for sure don't work for a whole bunch of things, and you're hoping right. it'll work for your special thing. Whereas with repurposing available drugs, you have a pool of drugs that you know work. They're good drugs. They're already on the market, and they work for, in right. most cases, more than one thing. It, so it's really a big difference. Yeah, I was just going to say, it's, it's fascinating as well how some of these drugs are so simple in what they do. And as you mentioned earlier, it's, it's such a complex issues with the brain are so complex and happen over decades. It's, it's kind of miraculous in a way that, uh, that a relatively simple chemical could help. And I suppose this is where we get into the combinations where at, at age 35, it's, it's very unlikely that there's a silver bullet where you take a, a, pre-approved drug for something else and it just happens to work but potentially by 
really tweaking dosage and different combinations, you can start to get closer. Yeah, and it's it's impressive when you actually look at some of the long-term results in populations where available drugs can make a big difference in diseases that are difficult to treat. There was a, a recent paper that was basically a, a study of the Swedish National Healthcare Registry where they looked at all the records for everybody in Sweden over, I think, a 15-year period. And they looked at the records for people with diagnoses of schizophrenia and bipolar disorder, which are really tough-to-treat conditions, chronic mental illness, severe mental illness. And they identified three classes of compounds that were, um, that were effective in decreasing rates of hospitalization in those patients, psychiatric hospitalization, so non-psychiatric meds. And they found things like statins, calcium channel blockers, and biguanides like metformin. So some of the really popular repurposing candidates that have been mentioned for a lot of things, including Fragile X. The thing is, in psychiatry, we identified calcium channel blockers a long time ago as being potentially useful in these conditions. And they've done many rigorous clinical trials with calcium channel blockers, and they always come up with mixed results just using this one drug by itself. Right. So ironically, if you look at thousands of patients over, over uh, dozens of years, you can see very clear beneficial effects from these drugs. But when you actually do a traditional clinical trial, you lose that effect. Right. It just gets lost in the noise. Do you, do you think, um, Bruce or Mike, that the that repurposing is a solution to the potential high price problem in rare disease? So there are many, every year, there are many more transformative drugs coming out using RNA interference or, G, or exon skipping or other kinds of next generation therapies. But Almost um, without exception, these carry price tags of hundreds of thousands or, or even millions of dollars per patient per year in some cases. Is, is repurposing potentially a solution to this problem as well? Well, we hope that it is um, for any number of reasons. So first of all, um, if you can reduce the, the timeline to get a drug to market and you can reduce the cost of the the clinical trials and the preclinical development, then you have less um, investment that you have to recoup over right. the period of time. So to start with, it should be cheaper from that standpoint. The second thing that makes it less expensive is most of the drugs we're going to repurpose are generic drugs that already are widely manufactured and um, you know we know how to, to make these. So the cost of goods is fairly low as compared to making a monoclonal antibody or something that has to, you know, incubate over a long period of time. So the costs are low. And, you know, obviously every commercial company needs to be commercially viable, so we can't do it for free. But part of the reason I joined Helix over the summer was the commitment of the founders, the board, and the investors that um, – in every way possible, when we can bring a, a drug to market, we want to bring it at a, an affordable price. And we hired a, a company to look at, for example, the Fragile X market. And we said, um, you know, if we were uh, a company that was trying to maximize profits, what is the maximum price we could bring out of this combination of repurposed drugs? And then at the other end, we said, so if you look at how much investment it's going to take for us to get this drug to market, what's our break even? And then we said to them, what's a reasonable price that's closer to break even than it is to maximum available price that provides enough profit for us so we can continue to do this kind of work and is still reasonable for patients and payers. And it was, it was interesting for a, a, a disease the size of Fragile X with the kind of uh, penetration we think we'd have, you know, the percentage of patients who might um, uh, have good uh, use of the, the particular drug. And we can bring it out, you know, for many less zeros than, you know, the, the ones that you were talking about. And, you know, it's, I think it's amazing the breakthrough that gene therapies and antisense oligonucleotides and other kinds of things 
are eventually going to bring. And obviously, over long periods of time, we'll figure out how to do that more cheaply, I hope, because we won't be able to afford it economically. uh, You know, we're unable to to fund every rare disease at a million dollars a patient. Um, So we're very hopeful that we'll, you know, where we have control over the drug price, that we'll be able to bring these out at at very affordable levels. And I would also like to point out that it's not an either or proposition. It's not that we have repurposing with available drugs or we have definitive therapeutics like gene therapy. We can have both. Right. And I think we've seen from the cases where gene therapy has become a reality from those rare exceptions. Like, for example, everyone is talking about SMA, um, spinal yep. muscular atrophy, and, and the fact that there's a gene therapy for it. Well, that's great, but it has to be done very early in life or it just doesn't work. So there may be similar developments in Fragile X that are developed, which are effective early in life. But if you give them to people who are older than three or four years old, it just doesn't work. That's where I think you still need to have better therapeutics for the folks who are around and alive with Fragile X because they have a normal life expectancy. They live a long time. There's a lot of older people around with Fragile X. Yeah, it's a very good point. And I suppose also you can imagine a world where there's a, there's a frontline therapy that we know works for uh, the, the majority of people and develop some way to determine who that is going to work for. And if it's not going to work for them, then you move them on to something potentially more expensive in the way that is done with cancer, where they don't go for the latest um, breakthrough drug on everyone. They They try what they know works and then only shift to the more expensive things when when it has to be done because as a society i think if you were to do the math on 7000 rare disorders and one in 15 people affected by a rare disorder if we're spending a million dollars a year per per patient it's it's just not going to work but in in the cases where it is truly life saving um, then we have to find a way to make it work right absolutely yeah, and you know the other thing that we we think about, um, Patrick, is that um, we're not just doing this for developed nations. You know, there are people with fragile X all over the world, and we want to make sure that you know, in places where nobody could afford a million dollar therapy, there might still be an affordable therapy that that patients can can manage. The other thing about repurposing that I think is incredibly powerful is when you have a success in repurposing, it often helps you see what other kinds of things might be helpful, whether it's a new drug that could be developed that could be even better than the repurposed drugs or additional repurposing that could be helpful. Um, When I was at Cures Within Reach, one of the projects that we had invested in that was taking place in Germany uh, actually has uh, a nine a drug repurposing regimen in addition to the standard of care anti-cancer drug in um, recurrent brain tumors. And, you know, it took, it took four or five years for a group of people using AI and other resources to come up with these nine drugs, none of which are, are oncology drugs, but they all do something in cells that doesn't overlap with something else and doesn't thwart what one of the other drugs does and in order to begin to help the the cancer drug work better and help the patient's own immune system and other mechanisms work better. And my guess is that as we get more advanced in our work, both with AI and precision medicine and with our understanding about drug repurposing, diseases like fragile X that have so many components to them um, could be amenable to an even bigger cocktail of low dose drugs and, and even nutraceuticals, which are drugs that have never just been approved as drugs. Right. You know, there's a lot of nutraceuticals out there that have very powerful biological activity in the body and they just never been approved as drugs. Right, and if we can if we can get them approved, maybe we can turn them into drugs so that you get the same dose and you know the same kind of quality that you get in drugs, but we know that they 
they're helpful and, and patients and safe to use. So, yeah, I think we've been asking the question the wrong way for many years. And we start to think about these drugs that are highly targeted interventions that, that affect a specific pathway and that that comes from academic research that's very narrowly focused on on something going on in the brain, for example. And then you try to get a drug that addresses that pathway and, and you try to take that through clinical trial and get it approved. That's one way of doing things, but it hasn't really worked out. Maybe a, a better question is, let's say we've got a pool of available drugs, which are, say, in the usual number of people float is around 2,000 unique chemical entities that are available. But really, it's just a couple of hundred drugs that are suitable for administration to children, for example, and things that get into the brain. So you've got this relatively small pool of drugs. Maybe the real question ought to be, what are the best three drugs for people with fragile X to be on long-term for optimal functioning and quality of life? Kind of like that Swedish study. What are right. the best three drugs over a long period of time that would work out for folks? I always think of these these studies that show that places that have lithium in the groundwater, even though it's in very small concentrations, they have a much lower rate of suicide and homicide and accidents and depression and all kinds right. of things. And it, it's something that you can only see over the long term. But I think what we have now is a technology that may be able to get a handle on that. And once you get a handle on that for one condition, you can start to train the machine, look at all kinds of other conditions, because a lot of these things are related. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a perfect segue to the question I was uh, going to ask Bruce is how do you how does this scale? Um, how do you go from, yeah, I, I'm understanding is Fraxa is one of the first really successful programs that you've run, but the, the plan now is to do this dozens or hundreds of times? How, how does that play out? Well, just what, um, what Mike was sort of talking about, um, you know, thinking of what group of drugs could be used in one disease. We also think about what disease issues are present in multiple diseases. You know, what kind of disease clusters show similar, um, phenotypes, signs and symptoms that Fragile X has, where we might be able to utilize the same technology, maybe the same drugs to find repurposed therapies in those. Um, we know from our experience at Cures Within Reach, um, we were involved with a, a lab uh, and a, a physician scientist at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia who found a drug that could be repurposed for uh, a pedi- what's called a pediatric autoimmune cytopenia, which basically means there were some um, white blood cells that were not uh, performing as they should in the body. And because of this poor performance of these white blood cells, they would build up in the body and crowd out the healthy spaces and the kids would eventually die. We repurposed this drug for that disease, and when it was successful, 85% of the kids were in complete remission in 90 days on a single dose in the morning and the evening, and it's now been since through 2004, so in 15 years, no dose escalation and no acquired resistance. These kids are doing great, but we went back to the researcher, and we found six other similar diseases, and we did a clinical trial in those. And in four of those diseases, the same dose of the same drug um, rescued those patients in those wow. similar but different diseases. And so we, we really feel like there's a, an opportunity for drug repurposing. If we can create the success we believe we'll have in Fragile X, we know there are other rare diseases that you know, show those same phenotypes, the same signs and symptoms. The other thing that's obviously interesting, and, and Mike sort of alluded to it with the low-dose lithium in the, in the groundwater, but um, some of these repurposed drugs are also going to be useful in more common diseases, but it's easier to get them app- approved and get funding to test them in the rare disease. And some of these drugs, and there's lots of people doing work in this now, might be important for just general health, you know, improving 
the quality of life if it doesn't improve the length of life. But some of them, like rapamycin and metformin, have been tested in laboratory animals and have shown that you can increase quality and length of life with low doses of these. And uh, and there are some studies like the one Mike referenced in uh, in the lithium population where you can see patients who are on long-term um, of a particular drug, not only did it work for whatever condition like type 2 diabetes, but it helped in other things uh, in their general health. And so we we strongly believe in the idea of using the medicines that are already available because we know how they work and we know how they're safe and we know their interactions with other drugs and other diseases. So eventually, my guess is that you know, precision medicine is going to allow us to do diagnosis far ahead of how we can create new on-the-spot therapies. And so the best we'll have is the drugs and the nutraceuticals that are already available. Right. And, you know, 10 years from now, there will probably be tests where you can go into your doctor who will say, hey, based on what's going on in your, in your genes right now and in your proteins and in your blood, we suggest you go on this cocktail of low dose existing drugs because we think that'll help not just, you know, a drug for cholesterol, but a drug for overall health because these things are complicated and uh, interact with each other. Right. I, I love that vision for the future. That'd be amazing. How, how yeah, it's only possible with available drugs. If you think about it, you can't just go and make a new drug for every condition because we know how difficult that is. And we know, what the failure rate is and it's 99 plus percent. Right. Yeah. And, right. and the, the expense just doesn't add up, right? I think it costs uh, upwards of a billion dollars now to get a drug to market. So as, as our understanding of disorders increases and we split them into more and more precise groups, the math is just not going to add up. Right. Right. And, and what's interesting I think is, combinations of existing drugs really create in the body what you might get by um, developing a new drug, but even better because they'll hit multiple targets at the same time. It would be hard to create a drug that would do what a combination of two drugs in Fragile X will do. It would be too complicated to figure out how you create that kind of a drug. Right. So it, it's really a very powerful way of thinking about it. And what's interesting is over the last 15 years or so, as I've been working in this space, you, we've watched uh, drug repurposing go from unknown in 2005 to um, sort of disdain in the, you know, late 2000, late 2000s, you know, everybody turned their nose up at it to being interesting in the early, you know, 2010 to 2015 and being kind of all the rage right now. Every pharmaceutical company has um, divisions that look at their own assets and see what they can be repurposed for. And uh, so it's, it, I, I think it's going to continue to gain popularity and it's going to be essential if we're going to improve care and reduce cost, which is the holy grail of healthcare, right? Right. Right now, new chemical entities, new medicines improve health and increase costs, and that's unsustainable. So um, hopefully repurposing can be a part of, of bringing the cost down and improving right. the care. Mike, what and does... It, the oh. more we do it, the better we'll get at it. So, you know, when Helix yeah. said that, that they want to find repurposing solutions for a hundred rare diseases over the next five or six years. Um, that may be ambitious, but that's not unrealistic because the fact of the matter is once you get the first 10 or 15, you reach a tipping point where the knowledge right. in the system becomes so great that the next few become a lot easier. And then after that, the next few become really easy. And at a certain point, the next few will become trivial. What, Mike, does a, a patient organization or a foundation need to start a program like this? Do you need to have some connections to academic lab or your own academic or, or your own wet lab to do the follow-on research? Or, or what, what does a, if someone who's listening, who's part of a research foundation or patient organization, how do you recommend getting started on something like this? Well, I, I consult with a lot of different rare disease foundations and most of them are a lot younger than Fraxa. 
because most rare diseases have been more recently recognized than fragile X. I do think it's important to have the capability to do the lab work, but I would also say that over the years, one of the most important lessons that we've learned is that you can use contractors, you can use right. CR. They don't have to be academic labs. Uh, they're out there. There are people who can do this work for you for a reasonable fee and with complete accountability. So you pay them the money, they give you the results. And and that's something you don't always get in academia. So I think the right. academic model is, is part of the problem. And it's part of it's it, it's part of the system that doesn't really work very well. It's very inefficient. And especially as more and more rare disease foundations pour into that space and try to get academic labs working on their rare disease, you're just kind of bidding up the cost to do the same thing. It's make, making it more and more difficult. So I think using contractors to do what we've done through a, a basically a, frac, a FRAXA internal resource I think is a, a viable possibility, but obviously it can't all be done on a computer. You have to have clinics, you have to have labs, you have to have animal models, right. cell models, you have to have something. And Bruce, I guess with the new rare treatment accelerator that you all are working on, Helix now has a lot more money to work with because of some of the early successes and, and the belief from the investor community that this is a way to change treatment in rare disease. So you have a program where patient organizations can speak to Helix and Helix will provide, uh, I think, up to a million US dollars or pounds. I'm, I'm not sure of funding to do some of this early development work. Is that right? Yeah, we have the, that program, the Rare Treatment Accelerator Program. We announced it in late November and the first applications are due in January. Uh, and the idea there, and, and sort of to answer in addition to some of the things Mike said, we're looking for patient groups that have um, deep disease knowledge, that have access to networks, cellular models, animal models. They don't have, don't have to own them, any of them themselves, but they have to know where they exist and, and which ones make sense. Um, they, they have to have um, patient knowledge so that we can work with them to say what's the most important thing for us to, to go after if we're looking for a therapeutic value for your patient population. It's interesting. I'll give you a quick example. So there's a, a rare disease called Prater-Willi syndrome. And if you look at it, you might think intellectual disability or um, you know some growth issues might be the things that the parents and the patients would be most concerned about. But when we talked to the patient group and the parents, we found out the, the number one thing they want us to deal with is sleeping because these kids don't sleep through the night. And if they don't sleep through the night, the parents don't sleep through the night. And if everybody's exhausted, right. the rest of it doesn't make any difference. And we would never have found that out by going to the literature. There's no publication that says the biggest issue in Prater-Willie is that kids don't sleep. But the patient group brought that kind of knowledge. And Mike and the, the people we've dealt with at Fraxa have told us all sorts of things that we would never have been able to, right. to get from reading the literature, talking to the scientists, talking to the clinicians. That's so incredibly valuable. And, and because of that, we're able to both focus our, our work and speed along the, the development. I mean, we basically went from starting the, the predictions in Fragile X to being in a position to write the clinical trial protocol in 18 months, which, you know, is like light speed in drug development. And, um, yeah. you know, as we continue to do this and get better at figuring out how to get these clinical protocols written quickly and, and move them along, we're, we're hopeful to be in the clinic in less than 24 months in most of the diseases. And we do have uh, $20 million or 20 million pounds. It's close these days. So, um, <laughs> you know, unfortunately, uh, but, um, we don't have a set amount that will commit to a particular disease. We'll do what's necessary to, to get the predictions made and the preclinical validation complete. And in some cases, it'll be less than a million dollars and some that it'll, it'll be more. But as long as it's moving towards 
looking like it could have a clinical impact on patients, we'll keep funding it until we're at the point where we can either decide there's no value there or we're ready to, to move into the clinic. And at that point, we'll have to raise more money because the clinical trials are, are more expensive. But we should have the, the, the assets, um, the commercial viability, and the patient support in order to raise those funds. Great. No, that's very exciting. So when we uh, put the episode out, we'll make sure we remind anyone who's at a patient organization to take a look at that and see if it applies to them. Because I do think it's a really, it's impossible to do this without collaboration. When we had Nick Soro from the AKU Society on a previous episode, and they've recently had very good news about uh, um, a, a treatment that they've been working on for years. And the takeaway was you have to have dedicated patients, dedicated researchers, dedicated commercial entity that's going to help with the clinical trial or bringing the assets. So I, I do think the the name of the game is is collaboration on this. There's no way for anyone to do it by themselves. Right. And, and uh, when the, this podcast is released, the nice thing about the Rare Treatment Accelerator is that we'll continue to have more opportunities for app applying and decision-making. So this is just our first cohort that ends on January 10th, 2020. But shortly thereafter, we'll have another call for applications because our, our goal is to find at least 20 of these patient groups that we can work with in a serial fashion. So it'll take us, you know, six to eight weeks to get each one started so that the predictions are moving along and, and we can move to the next spot and then we can enter a new one in. And we're just planning on on hopefully doing two to four of these every quarter for the next couple of years until, um, you know, we have an entire pipeline of potential therapies moving towards the patients. Great. That's really wonderful. Well, I know we're, uh, we've blasted through our hour uh, of <laughs> conversation. So I, I just want to say thank you to both of you for taking the time to do this. I think it's important to, it's so challenging to develop new treatments in rare disease. And, and when there is the rare exception where you get two groups or multiple groups that come together and are moving towards success. I think it's really good to talk about how that came about and, and how we can learn something more. And I, I really didn't expect the insight around how this can transform into health and wellness in general, micro dosing of small, um, you know, different combinations of existing drugs. I think it's a, it's a really fascinating view of how the future could be. And, and I think it makes sense in a lot of ways and, and solves some of these problems. So thank you both for, for taking the time. Well, it's really, it was my pleasure from Helix. And I just want to say, Patrick, really appreciate you taking the time to highlight all of these issues on the, on the podcast. And you do a great job on that. And I also wanted to say how honored we are to be able to work with Mike and Fraxa. I've known Mike for a long time. He's an amazing individual, and um, he sets the bar pretty high for other patient groups uh, for us. We come with very high expectations about what patient groups can bring to a collaboration because Mike was the first one. It's kind of like drafting Michael Jordan as the first player on your uh, basketball team. You know, After that, it makes it hard to, to think of one <laughs> anybody else, but we'll you know, and Mike has been very gracious about talking to other patient groups about how Helix works and others. So, Mike, while I have the chance to say thanks to you and, uh, uh, you know, how honored we are to work with you and how we're, we're also really honored to be moving some treatments through to patients. Um, it, it's what gets us up in the morning and uh, what we think about when we go to sleep at night here at Helix. Um, obviously, we're a, a small commercial biotech. But what really drives all of us is the thought that one day there might be a miracle for patients. Um, and if we can be a small part of that, we're, we're happy to do it. Well, I really appreciate that. And, and we really appreciate the chance to talk about Fragile X and to get the word out. And Helix has been great to work with. And uh, I'm not afraid to tell anybody about those experiences. It's, it's really just been a complete paradigm shift. And um, we really think it's the way to go. Great. Well, thank you, guys. This is one of the favorite parts of my day because I get to just hear from really fascinating and, and smart people talk about uh, 
things that I'm interested in. So it's really my pleasure. We'll keep track of uh, the progress from Fraxa's side. I'm sure it'll be in the next 24 to, well, probably 12 to 24 months, we'll be looking at clinical trial. And then on the Helix side, I think the rare rare treatment accelerator is a a really exciting new development. So hopefully we can keep track of you all and some of the first patient organization that you start to work with, because I think it's a very cool and scalable model that can hopefully uh, make a big difference in rare disease. Thanks, Patrick. Great. Thank you both. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye.